0: But I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2. And two summers ago, we did a series early on in the pandemic that we just called Hope and Healing Through the Psalms. And I shared the story of how meaningful the book of Psalms are to me because of my grandfather and visiting my grandfather when uh, dementia was starting to set in and he couldn't remember us and he would just hold my hand or hold my brother's hand or my dad's hand or, and just say, let's just read the Psalms together. Let's just read the Psalms because he knew that the Psalms were comforting. He knew that the Psalms had hope when he was in that weird stage of knowing that he was forgetting stuff that he should Remember? And it hit me very hard of all the things that my grandfather was forgetting. He knew to go to the book of Psalms. And I thought, boy, I hope that is what is ingrained in my head. That when everything else is getting foggy, I know where to find hope. And so we're calling this series now through Christmas Eve, our present and future hope. And we're going through the Messianic Psalms, meaning the Psalms that are telling of the Messiah that is to come. The Messiah of what they would put their hope in. They would put their hope of of freedom. They would put their hope of everything that didn't seem possible and they would put it in the Messiah. And so just so you know, we're, There are more Messianic Psalms than there are in weeks for this series, so I believe every Wednesday uh, we're going to be doing a devotional online as well. So tonight I'll cover Psalm 2, and then on Wednesday there will be a devotional online for Psalm 41, and that is how we will go through, including Christmas Eve, we'll do a psalm, and then I believe Christmas Day there will be a devotional that will finish the series as well. If you know the Messianic Psalms and you know it didn't match up, that's how we're doing it. We're calling it our present and future hope. And it wasn't just our present and future hope. Uh, This would have been the nation of Israel, the, the psalm as David was writing the majority of these, that would have been their present hope. And eventually when David didn't do all that they thought he would or should do, it was put into a future hope of the Messiah. Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan pastor in England in the mid to late 1600s, he one time said that hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. Hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. Just this last week, I was, believe it or not, at a coffee shop, Coastal, And the table next to me, I heard somebody repeatedly say, I don't know what this world's coming to. I've never seen it this bad. I don't know what this world's coming to. And just continually speaking, and and it was just absolutely hopeless. And as much as I would love to say that, yes, in fact, during this time, it seems that there's a lot of thick clouds. That it is getting hard to see sometimes. That is how it has always been. That at some point in time in everybody's life or maybe countless times or there's always been thick clouds that make it very difficult to see heaven. But it is that hope and what we place our hope in that helps us to see through the very thick clouds to the hope that is in heaven, the eternal Pure hope. Now Israel, when this was written, Israel's hope was built upon a ruler. It was built upon a king. And, and Israel, since it's really, it's formed from Abraham, always had its hope in what we would call an imperfect savior. An imperfect Christ type. Somebody that they would put their hope in. Abraham. Moses. And we can go through this list. Through the different Judges. And then through, they finally said, Hey, everybody else has a king, just give us a king. And God warns them what would follow with a king. And they said, Yeah, it doesn't matter, give us one, anyways. Everybody else got one, they look nice. And they got King Saul. That wasn't God's choice, that was the people's choice. God anointed David, and they put all their hope in David when he was the ruler. And again, they never lived at such a time where they had such a powerful military and they seemed to have so much money and they thought everything was going great under David. And when David wrote these Psalms, and what's interesting is there's this incredible correlation between this messianic Psalms that we've had ongoing conversations with the different people that are doing the devotionals or that we'll be preaching in, uh, in a couple weeks. And they said is this about David or is this about Jesus because it can get very foggy and I believe that it was both that David and and most of the times and most of the Psalms that we're going to go through he's it's about him and it is about the ruler of God's people Israel but so much of what is said is used later on in fact a part of Psalm 2 is what God says when Jesus is baptized and comes out of the water with John the Baptist, he said to me in verse seven, he'll say, you are my son. And then part of Isaiah, and he says, in whom I am well pleased. And so we see that these are meant for both, but David was the imperfect savior. Jesus would be the pure, perfect Messiah. Messiah. And it is believed that it wasn't until the post-exilic time, and again, last year we covered through Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi and Haggai, that they would continue to follow their kings, even though they were not worshiping God and they were in idol worship and they would hold to the Psalms, some of them, some of them would start putting their hope in this perfect Messiah because their leader was in no way perfect. And then they were taken into exile, they were taken into slavery, they were brought to Assyria, they were uh, brought to Babylon, and they just didn't make sense, and they started to wonder, will we ever actually have the ruler that we want? And then even when they were allowed to go back under under Cyrus, they went back, but they still were just puppet governors. And then again, it was more other rulers, and it was other nations that just kind of took turns being over them. And then the Romans came, and it was that group that we talked about, the the quiet in the land, the faithful remnant, that they started to realize that these psalms were meant for the coming Messiah, the perfect Savior, that that's what they were to put their hope in. And so Psalm 2 isn't just a, what we call the messianic psalm, it is also a ruler psalm, a psalm about the perfect ruler as well. So again, we have David. David is writing this. It is believed that early on, Psalm 1 and 2 were just the same psalm as an introduction to all the psalms. And uh, Psalm 2 was split to kind of give an introduction into the messianic psalms. And you'll see this dual thing happening between David, the imperfect and flawed, savior of Israel, and Jesus the perfect and complete Savior of the entire world. So read with me Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, Be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So point number one, we see in verses one through three, the great conspiracy. The Great Conspiracy, verses one through three. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. You see, there is a conspiracy at work. And it probably was going on for David as well. As you know, David was constantly being uh, tried to be overthrown. Different sons of his tried to overthrow him, and Absalom came really close. So they're not sure of the exact writing of this psalm, but it may have been during one of those times where it seemed everybody was against him. And Absalom actually had the majority of the kingdom on his side, and it seemed inevitable. But God protects his anointed one. But the big conspiracy, the great conspiracy that is being talked about here is this conspiracy of the world's leaders, the kings, the rulers, the people that actually make things happen in the world. And so when you hear these different conspiracy theories, it shouldn't be surprising. It's always what's happened. And their conspiracy is they are trying to, it says, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. They are trying to break free of God's rule. They're trying to break free of what God has instituted, what his son came and defeated, both sin and death, to give this big, eternal, perfect hope for you and for me and those that believe in him. So it isn't that there are people that are conspiring against God. It's this, this has been the story since the beginning that Satan, since the Garden of Eden, has used whatever he could to turn people from God. That is the conspiracy. And as much as we'd like to think that that happens in these big secret meeting rooms somewhere, it happens in your heart every day. That Satan has a conspiracy that he is trying to bring people and turn them away. He's trying to get them to put their hope in something other than the Savior. This conspiracy is driven by Satan, who always wants to cause resistance and rebelliousness towards God's kingdom. Point number two. This is God's response to the conspiracy. God's response to the conspiracy, verses four through six. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. There's been several statistics that those who believe and and buy into conspiracy theories are much more prone to anxiety and depression and different mental health things, and it's been proven over and over again. And it's interesting how God responds to this conspiracy. Number one, he knows that it is real because Satan has fought him from the beginning of time. But it's interesting because God is all-powerful. And God is over all things. And so at first, when a human decides that they are going to fight against God, it is laughable. My professor, the one that I stole, the Meganoita, may it always be, he would always say in different parts of the Bible as he was teaching, and puny man shakes his fist at God meaning here we are a created being shaking our fist at the all-powerful creator, thinking that God didn't see something coming, that God wasn't in control at different times, that mankind in some way got the best of an all-knowing God. And so at first it's laughable, but then it gets serious. And I kind of think of it as uh, if one of my sons decided and he came up to me and said dad I can take you in a fight it's on me and you right now I feel somewhat confident in my skills that I could take a four-year-old if I had to even Bodie at one and a half that, that raised some questions but all of a sudden it gets serious when I say yeah let's do it and then rock starts going to all of his buddies hey can you help me a minute And he starts turning people against me. Now that influence has become a severe concern. Again, I think I can take up to four four year olds in a physical fight and still be okay. By the way, I'm not gonna fight any of your four year olds, I promise. But we see God and he laughs at this, that they're conspiring against him. But then he sees Satan influencing soul after soul after soul, getting them into a rebellious attitude towards God's almighty, turning them away from the kingdom of God. He sees Satan come after the people who are part of that kingdom and they start to misrepresent that kingdom in their lives. And now things get serious. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. When they turned against David and it seemed lost, God is reminding them, my king, my anointed will sit on Zion in Jerusalem. That is where I have him and he will be back because I said so. But even more so now is his, the ruler, that everything was created for him and by him and through him, Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, that everything, that he is that king of the kingdom, that he will be no matter what mankind, no matter what human tries to come up with to overthrow God's rule, it will not happen. Number three we see the fragility of the nations, how fragile the nations are. Verses seven through nine. David writes, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. David and Understand that in history and in in the different studies, the Israelites had no business being this ruling military power. They were really viewed as just these old country, uh, trying to think of what word I can actually say on a microphone being recorded, like these hill people. They were farmers. They had sheep. They came to war most of the time without good weaponry, and the Philistines were incredibly technologically advanced. They had these unbelievable chariots and they had everything and historians and and people have studied. How did Israel do what they did under David? It makes no sense. And it is because of God. David continually pointed to God. How did David beat a giant? God. His faith was in God. And it wasn't, they weren't really technologically advanced until Solomon came along, but the kingdom was established under David. And so it seemed like David was just this unbelievable military leader who made these nations, these powerful nations around them. And again, understand all the nations that David are beating when you're reading through first and second Samuel, first and Kings, first Chronicles, it doesn't make sense to us. We just see David as this powerful military ruler with this incredible army of people, but the the kept fighting him because they didn't understand how he kept winning. It made no sense to them. The Philistines had giants and chariots, the best, everything. And they kept losing to David. So when he says he rules with this rod of iron, he dashes to the nations like they are just fragile earthen vessels. Pieces like, he dashes them to pieces like pottery. How much more so will the perfect savior, because there were times that David lost, but it's when he took his attention off of God. There were times when the Israelites went into war, but there was sin in their camp. They went into war, but they hadn't asked God. They started to rely on themselves and not him. And they were the ones that were dashed to pieces. So we see this true with David, but how much more so with Jesus, especially when you start to read what will happen in the end times. When you read through the history of mankind and you always see these nations like Rome, like Greece, like Assyria, like so many that just seem like they are all powerful to the point where everybody is putting their faith in their military and they're putting their faith in their leaders and all of their hope is built on a leader. And just like that, God wants to remind people that he's the one in charge. That he can dash the nations like fragile pottery. Uh, Then number four, the Lord will demonstrate his power. The Lord will always demonstrate his power. Verses 10 through 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the Lord's warning to every nation that will exist. It is a warning to those who are coming against David. David is, as he's writing this saying, no, God told me this is what's going to happen. So David has no fear, or he shows no fear. Meanwhile, he's journaling, writing Psalms, and he's demonstrating, yeah, I'm actually kind of afraid. But David's faith was in God, and he knew what God says is true. How much more so is God's word for his son, Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased So he's warning the rulers, if you really want to rule correctly, you fear God. If you really want to rule correctly, the rulers of the world, it's almost two different types of people. It's almost like God knows that there's elected people, and then there's also people that can make decisions. Not necessarily elected, I guess anointed would be more fitting at the time. But ultimately, God is in control, and he is warning every single person, Kiss my son. Love my son. As Jesus say, the most important command, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. If you do not kiss his son, he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. A warning has been issued. And what we have seen since that warning was issued in Psalm, and even before, since the creation of man, was a warning was put forth by God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. When we start to get sidetracked, we enter into idol worship when we start to lose focus of of where our hope should be in and how we should put our hope in the one true Savior, that is over all things, and we start to put our hope in political leaders, we start to put our hope in military strength we start to put our hope in financial gain we start to put our hope in our status and our relationship status and our status in society and we start to do all of these different things we start to demonstrate what our hope is truly in we start to demonstrate when when we li- the way we live our life is demonstrating of what our hope is in and who we truly worship and who we truly worship we will serve and it will start to penetrate every area of our lives. So as we move into the application, I want to look at that last line. Blessed or blessed are all who take refuge in him. At the time, David was the ruler that they took pride in. And David is pointing them back. No, no, no. We take refuge in God. The amount of times that, that David calls God our rock, our foundation, our fortress, our refuge. David knew most of the time, and the reason that he's called a man after God's own heart is he knew what he should put his hope and abilities in even as a military leader. Refuge means to find and go to a safe location or shelter. To go to a safe place. And I love that word blessed as we just went through the Beatitudes and we talked about that word blessed meaning. What blessed means is that you can be and you can partake in God's character when you do this. That blessed isn't just being happy from the inside or being filled with joy. It is literally the reason that we can be, feel blessed in any circumstance is when we enter into that rest that can only be found in that refuge, that safe place, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter how cloudy, how murky, how hard it is to see heaven with the cloudiness around us. We can find ourselves in that safe spot. We go to that refuge, we, we abide, we, we become part of the character of God when we are blessed. The Israelites found themselves putting their hope in God's chosen king. In fact, they would continue, so many of them would continue to put their hope in, in a king that when Jesus came, they said, sorry, you don't match up with what we want the way you act and who you talk to and who you hang out with, we're looking for something different. But those who who thought they were the most religious, the religious leaders, the, the most educated in the land, didn't fall and worship the king that they were hoping for, they killed him. They fought against him. They tried to trap him. Every king, every human Ruler, every person who has tried to get the most amount of likes is an incomplete savior. During that post exilic time, they started to realize maybe, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we're living for the wrong things. Maybe our hope should be in the rock in the safe place the shelter in the storm and again there is there is always a battle there's always a continuation of this conspiracy but that is never what we are told to pay attention to. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 through 18, God tells Isaiah, hey, listen, everybody around you is trying to figure out what kingdom's in charge and what's going to happen and what king's going to do this and what, who's going to end up ruler. Don't pay attention to that. You focus on obeying the Lord in all things. We are always told to never get caught up in these things. I uh, just was reading through First Thessalonians and these genealogies or these strange teachings or all of these other things that want to vie for your attention and your emotions and your hope. When we put our hope in anything other than the hope and refuge of the Lord, we will always be let down and we will always be left hopeless. I opened up with a quote from Thomas Brooks. And another person in his time, William Gurnall wrote, hope fills the afflicted soul with such inward joy and consolation that it can laugh while tears are in the eye, sigh and sing all in a breath. It is called the rejoicing of hope. When he wrote that, he was talking about Hebrews chapter three, verse six. And so I want to kind of bring us to a closing here in Hebrews after the Messiah had come in the book of Hebrews is written to explain primarily to the Jewish people why Jesus is the answer. In chapter three, the writer writes, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. At this time when we move in and I kind of always find it laughable and because there's Not many of us here tonight, I I feel very free to speak. But kind of an ongoing joke is, well, it's Christmas season. So attendance goes down and giving goes down. Happy birthday, Jesus. I just remembered when being recorded. It's that time where we can get wrapped and caught up in using Jesus' name to manipulate, to get the things that we want. That we use it as a way of truly showing what we really, our hope is really in. We use it as a way to really demonstrate and and show what we truly worship. And so as we go through this series, our prayer is that, our hope is in the right place. That the actions that we are doing, the things that go about in our daily conversations and in our daily actions and then the way which we carry ourselves and the things that we put a high value on are demonstrating that our hope and our refuge that, is, that was once for the past and is definitely for the present and even more so for the future that Jesus is our present and future hope. Our prayer is we live like that. I'm so excited to go through this series. I always am as we go through song. So I invite you to, I think they'll be on the website every Wednesday. Is that the plan? Yes, every Wednesday. Sure. We'll have the devotionals up as we follow along and as we, really put our hope in him. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to join together, that we can come together and even though it's a little chilly this evening, Lord, we can come together and celebrate you and worship you, celebrate our savior and what our hope is truly in. Lord, our prayer is that if there is anyone here who's never made you the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, that tonight would be that night that they would call out to you. That you would become that eternal hope, that eternal refuge. Lord, you know our hearts and you know our minds. You know the things that are vying for our attention constantly. The things that we are tempted to put our hope in the things we have put our hope in that do not last for eternity. So, Lord, I pray not just for those who don't know you, that they would come into that relationship with you, but that those who do know you, that you are their perfect and complete savior. Lord, that we would live in a way that demonstrates what our hope is truly in.